Hi, I'm Andreas Lapakis, Editor-in-Chief of the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm speaking with Braden Manns and Tracy Wasilak, who are here to tell us about an initiative by Alberta Health Services called Strategic Clinical Networks, and I've reached them uh, both in Braden's office in Calgary. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Let's just start with a, a quick description of who you are. So Tracy, can we start with you? Sure. My position as Chief Program Officer for the Strategic Clinical Networks at uh, Alberta Health Services, and I've been involved in this initiative since its inception in 2011, and I also hold an adjunct professor uh, position at the University of Calgary Faculty of Nursing. And were you a nurse before, Tracy? I was. I I was a practicing ICU nurse for many years. Awesome. Braden? Yeah, so I'm a kidney specialist in Calgary, and I work at the University of Calgary uh, in the departments of medicine and, and health economics, and I'm the associate chief medical officer for Alberta's strategic clinical networks. So why don't we sort of jump right in and, and have you tell listeners in sort of 60 seconds or less, like, why should Canadians and Canadian physicians care about strategic clinical networks? So a good question, Andreas. So you know this, but international surveys tell us that our healthcare system is one of the most expensive in the world. Uh, fortunately, the U.S. always uh, slightly behind us in these metrics, but uh, aside from that, we're a very expensive health system. And we get average or below average outcomes in terms of access and quality. We know that there's gaps in care and health outcomes are not as good as they can be. And we know from the Naylor report that there's lots of good ideas around how to get over these gaps, how to address them. But we really, in provinces, we've had a real challenge in terms of scaling up solutions that work to overcome these gaps. So networks are really about how do we get evidence into care. So for instance, antipsychotic use in long-term care facilities was quite high, uh, and that was identified as an important gap uh, by Alberta Health Services and in our Alberta Health System. We borrowed an idea from a Manitoba area that had successfully uh, reduced the inappropriate use of antipsychotics. We think that's important because it's associated with strokes and elderly patients with dementia. Uh, and so we implemented a solution that had, that had worked elsewhere. We spread it across the province initially to all of the long-term care, but but now also the supportive living environments. And we've taken our antipsychotic use from, from about 28% down to 17%. So we've sort of gone from having the worst numbers in, in the country to having some of the best numbers in the country. So that's just an example of what networks can do. They can work across stakeholders, across uh, regions, to push good ideas up provincially. One of the things I really like about that example is that you got the intervention from Manitoba because uh, my sense is in Canada, we, we tend not to feel almost that, that we can't take stuff that other folks have shown to be effective. So uh, congratulations on that. Yeah, I was just going to say then where we got that from was uh, uh, the extra program that's sponsored by the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Nurses Association, and Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement. And this was a this was a small long-term care facility in just outside of Winnipeg that published their small project. And this idea that we can share innovation across the country and not have to reinvent it uh, is, uh, I think, something that the networks feel that we should be doing a lot more of. Let's try and make this sort of more granular and, and real and use that example of the antipsychotic prescriptions in long-term care facilities. So I can't imagine folks in Alberta didn't know before the SCNs existed that that was probably an issue and 
probably want to address it. So tell us a bit about like which strategic clinical network took this on uh, and what exactly was it about the SCN that allowed you to do this that didn't allow you to do it before? When we started the networks, Andreas, you you may have recalled this, that we asked every SCN to look at areas in health where we were either causing harm or by virtue of what we were doing, we weren't actually adding value. So the addictions in mental health and the seniors health SCN took it upon themselves to reassess uh, sort of that polypharmacy and long-term care. And even though we had indicators that are benchmarked nationally, actually, because so much of long-term care is in the private sector and not owned and operated by AHS, this really wasn't on anyone's radar screen until we were able to pull the data provincially and start to look at it and, and then start to compare ourselves to other provinces. So I think one of the things the networks do a really good job of is they have the time and space to actually pull the right data and do the analytics on it to say, yes, there's variation. Is it appropriate or inappropriate? And then, okay, if it's inappropriate, scan the world to say who's doing this well and try and take what they're doing and then customize it to an Alberta context. The other thing about long-term care that I wanted to point out is it's not well-resourced. The funding models across the provinces are quite different. And so their ability to do a lot of quality improvement is hampered by some of those uh, barriers. So the network was able to actually be the change management and um, do the train the trainer and support a lot of private sector long-term care facilities so you mentioned the two strategic networks, mental health and, and addictions. So tell us a bit about like what makes a strategic clinical network. Who's leading these? And frankly, what's what's their budget? How, how, how many resources are at the disposal of these two strategic clinical networks? So the governance model for the network is a senior medical. We have a, a part-time senior medical director who has uh, expertise in the in the field of that network. We have an administrative director, and we've also uh, worked with the universities to have a part-time scientific director. And uh, so it's a small staff, but dedicated to each network. And then in order to get a broad view from across the province, we actually have created these core committees. And on the committees, we bring patients and families. Uh, we have policymakers. We have the operational leaders and managers. And then 50% of the network committee is active practicing clinicians, not just physicians, but nurses, allied health professionals, with the idea that we get a broad spectrum of, of voices at the table to think about, you know, where are the vexing problems and how might we solve them? And so there's a small cost for the infrastructure, uh, Andreas, that goes into supporting that, that small team. And uh, then AHS has, uh, we've either resourced their projects through innovation funding that's been awarded to us through our health authority, or we've brought in uh, grants from outside agencies to help do the pilot testing to be able to do the proof of concept and show our funders that this is something of value that be worth spreading and scaling. So maybe just to push it more, you're talking about three people being responsible for running the network, clinician, 
a manager and a sort of scientist. It sounds like the clinician's part-time. Um, is there then a core group of, because you mentioned before that one of the advantages of the network is that you are able to analyze data, et cetera. So like who does that? Yeah, so there is a full-time executive director and a full-time assistant scientific director. You know, networks, we didn't start clinical networks. We didn't invent these things. They were going in the UK, Scotland, and New South Wales and Australia for about 20 years. I guess where our networks look a slight bit different, um, Cy Frank and Tom Nosery and Tracy realized that if we're going to embed ourselves on, uh, you know, using data to inform changes in care, that we need a strong scientific arm. So we we do have, uh, you know, the executive director and the and an assistant scientific director who are who are full-time staff as well. I would say that one of the things we've become really cognizant of is that we're not just a network that that uh, is hived off away from operations and away from the rest of the organization. We're supporting operational priorities. And those people aren't just you know, sending emails throughout the day. They're, they're working on the projects that the, that the network is working on um, with our operational partners and our zones and our provincial programs. So one of the challenges that we had, and we can talk more about costs later, is when you think about the projects that each of the networks are leading and, and projects start, as, as Tracy says, you identify a gap, you get an idea, you, you test it locally, um, you see if that works you know, using data. If it does, then you spread it out provincially. So there's sort of a pipeline with e with each network. The executive director spends spend some time on one project, which might be at the pilot stage. They're spending some time at a project that's moving provincially. There's there's resources if if we've been approved to move something provincially uh, that get added on. It might be you know coordinators, um, and so it's a bit of a matrix where they're supporting some of the core SCN, which is you know identifying those gaps, getting everybody to agree on which ones are the priorities starting to develop the ideas, vet those, pilot them, and then move them provincially. And so all the networks, as they start, they're at a different place. And then obviously the goal is now you've, you've spread something provincially. It seems to work. Let's pass it off to operations and let's just get that sustained as usual practice within the system. Andreas, I'll just add that we, we do support a little bit of a business intelligent unit around the SCNs. Not every SCN has their own. But our analytics department has deployed some of our major analysts to the networks. We have a health economist who helps with doing, you know, the whole cost effectiveness and determining the whole value proposition. And we have access to a full-time implementation scientist and others. That business intelligence unit really is core to all the SCN. If you took all the resources that are going into the SCNs now in Alberta, and we'll talk about cost savings in a sec, how, how much is that approximately per year? I mean, roughly speaking, and Tracy can add in the decimal points, but roughly speaking, a network is about a, a million dollars to run. But again, some of that resource is, is, is around supporting projects and things. So for every network you add, costing about a million dollars, uh, but we know from return on investment that we're getting, we're extracting more out of the healthcare system than than you know it costs. But it does take a couple of years to, as Tracy would say, to squeeze some juice from the lemon. You got to get people together. You got to agree on what you're going to work on. So there's an upfront investment, and you don't expect money back for a couple of years. And just for listeners, there's about four million people in Alberta. Is that about right? Four point three. Yeah. So what are the key ingredients for success? I mean, you're obviously thinking that this is is. Uh, successful initiative. What are the key ingredients? Yeah, so Andreas, when I started, actually, we did a bit of a review of the, you know, existing system-wide clinical networks to try to understand that. And actually, 
one of the things we were asked to do was actually, you know, Verna, you, our CEO, challenged us, said, you know, SCNs have done some good things, but we think they can do better. Um, and we, so we did a lot of listening uh, to stakeholders across the province and created a roadmap. And out of that, actually, it's interesting that what we heard from our stakeholders was very similar to what the experience of other countries was. Successful networks have great leaders. They communicate well. They communicate and they engage. So it's two-way communication. They have adequate resources and funding because if you're going to bring everybody together, you need some ability to then take priority projects forward. Otherwise, you just frustrate people. You need access to health data. Uh, you need well-designed projects that are strategically aligned with other health partners. You need effective partnerships. And you need to be embedded in the healthcare system. You can't sort of sit on the outside. And that's easier if you've got a province-wide health system like we've got uh, with Alberta Health Services. Although, as you know, primary care still sits outside Alberta Health Services. We've been really fortunate to have very uh, supportive leadership as well with our current AHS CEO, our board, and, and our old AHS uh, CEO. Those, I think, are the successful ingredients. To use an example, uh, the organization identified that uh, the experience and outcomes for for women um, with abnormal mammograms, um, you know, possible breast cancer was not optimal. Patients felt that their experience, the information they received, and the wait times, so a patient goes for a mammogram, it's noted to be abnormal. Um, the process was, okay, you go back to your family doctor who now tells you about that result. They send you for a, they organize a biopsy, you wait for that biopsy, that biopsy is done now. Um, the biopsy result goes back to the family doctor. The family doctor books another visit. Uh, the woman obviously is pretty concerned by this point. Uh, and then the family doctor, who, as you know, they they have to know something about everything about across the entire breadth, but they're just interpreting a biopsy. Now they're arranging a visit to, is it surgery or oncology? What happens then? Okay, well, maybe it's the surgeon in this case. Um, so that that process was taking quite a long time. So the network basically just got all the stakeholders together in the room, the diagnostic imaging, you know, primary care, the surgical programs, oncology, and said, well, what? how can we smooth this process and just move it efficiently along? Um, so now a woman with an abnormal mammogram, the radiologist speaks to the woman and they book the biopsy. They notify the family doctor that biopsy is done based on the result. A referral automatically goes into surgery. Uh, again, family doctors kept in the loop. And then we've been able to take that time from a woman going from an abnormal mammogram to a referral uh, to surgery down from, I think, about 25 days down to about nine, 10 days, something like that. You know, this was not rocket science. It just got people together and just smoothed out some of those inefficiencies. They also created educational tools and some information for patients. They have some, some navigators to help the women understand the process. Uh, and then at the same time, they tagged along, well, we're only doing 5% of surgeries as same-day mastectomies in Alberta, but actually some provinces were doing more than 50%. So they tagged on that initiative, and now we're doing over 50% of, of mastectomies as same-day mastectomies. So just that just gives a sense of, again, it's, it's not that we've developed some new cure for cancer. We're just getting patients uh, to the treatment more quickly with better information. And we've shown that that has improved patient experience. We've shown that it reduces the time to get the treatment that patients need, and it's reduced the uh, number of hospital days that people are in hospital, so it's saved money. And has that been truly spread across the whole province? Yeah, so that's been spread across the entire province, across all of the uh, surgical sites 
that are doing uh, mastectomies. Clinicians in the healthcare system are, and administrators within the system are, I think, all feeling incredibly busy and stressed. So how did you get this to be a top of their priority to make these changes, given that they have all these other competing priorities? Well, I think one of the things that um, has been a really uh, important way for us to uh, get priorities is, first of all, to demonstrate the burning platform has been important because, as you know, a lot of administrators are busy doing a lot of different things and uh, and they don't have the time and attention to get into the detail. But the other really important part of this has been patients. Patients have come to us and said, this is really important. So on the breast health example, uh, we had patients who were part of the network who said this is a priority. They also went to the ministry. So the ministry was concerned about it and said, can we work together to fix this? So it was helping to align the expectations of Albertans and the ministry and the health system. And so what I would say that all came together, the operators said, well, if you can get the clinicians and everyone together, we will support the recommendations. So we actually got a provincial group to come together and actually talk about this. Because as you know, a lot of the diagnostic imaging work that goes on actually is done in the community and private facilities. So I think one of the things the networks do is try and bring all the partners from across the system, regardless who, of who is the funder, to make sure that we can uh, build the continuum from primary care all the way across the system. And, and that is seen as a value add from, from the operator's perspective because they just don't have time. They're busy running the system every day. And this is redesign work that takes a little bit of thinking and planning with everyone's voice at the table. So I think you're re- raising a really important point because when I think of Alberta Health Services, as has been mentioned before, I, I realize I think I'm right that primary care is not part of AHS. And you said before that many of the long-term care facilities are private, but your AHS-funded strategic clinical networks are willing to engage and even spend money, I guess it sounds like, to help key stakeholders that aren't part of AHS to all work together as a team. Absolutely. And a a really good example of that is, uh, you know, we had a home care nurse uh, talk to diabetes, obesity and nutrition SCN about the fact that uh, wound care in the community and and diabetic foot ulcers weren't being treated properly. And and she was concerned that was leading to a higher incidence of premature amputations. So the network took a look at our amputation rates in comparison to other provinces, and we realized that we could do something about reducing that and helping the primary care networks do uh, better screening earlier on. And this isn't the family doc doing the screening. This is actually their nurses and 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 other people that when a diabetic patient comes to a family doctor visit, they could actually do some extra screening. And so that diabetic foot pathway, we've actually been able to uh, train and implement it in, uh, we have 42 primary care networks in Alberta, and 35 of them now have been trained and are applying the screening. And we're seeing uh, some really significant improvements in diabetic foot care in Alberta. And the other thing that we've been able to influence, uh, Andreas, is policy. So one of the things we found out was patients who are diabetics 
can't get um, any uh, uh, aids for their foot care until they show up with a diabetic ulcer. And we've been able to show our policymakers that giving them the foot care products before the ulcer shows up in high-risk patients will actually prevent the diabetic foot ulcer from occurring. So now we're starting to think about policy changes at the, at the government level. So that, that just speaks to um, the breadth of, uh, again, designing the pathways based on what the patient's journey is and working with everybody who touches that patient along the continuum. Well, just one thing to add there that this has worked the best in zones where there's an, an effector arm. So, you know, family physician identifies a high risk foot or maybe there's an ulcer developing um, in the zones that have been able to mobilize their podiatry teams and their vascular surgery teams. And, and again, the, the SCNs, we enable things, um, but, you know, vascular surgery and, and podiatry really got together and um, when they receive a patient, they're really aggressive at, at limb sparing surgeries and at really carefully managing these patients. And so that's been great as a, you know, because one of the things sometimes we say, oh, primary care, this is, you know, yours to fix, yours to fix, but they need somewhere to send people often. Um, and so we, we didn't own that vascular surgery piece. They've really stepped up to the plate and, and uh, you know, evaluations have shown that in zones that have uh, been able to organize their services that way, people spend less time in hospital as a result of amputations. And we believe that that's because there's more you know, toe and, and forefoot amputations versus those larger below knee amputations or above knee amputations that, that land people in hospital for more time. And zones are a term that you folks use for reasons, right? Yes. So um, one of you, I think Braden mentioned that at a certain point, you spread something across the province, it's integrated, and then you, you move it, I think, into the Alberta Health Services routine budget, and it no longer becomes something that the SCNs are worried about because they're moving on to something new. Do I sort of have that right? And is there any worry that if you take your eye off the ball with the long-term care example or the the uh, diabetic foot ulcer, that all just things will just go back the way they were before? Yes, that is a common issue when uh, post any project, and I know every province in Canada, we suffer from that. What we've tried to do, Andreas, when it comes to sustainability is we've built a bit of a dashboard on the key metrics of, of improvement. And we don't drop it all together, but we periodically take the dashboard to our clinical operations uh, executive team to help show the gain. The other thing we've done is in the zones where we have put resources in to sustain the work, uh, we've built an accountability agreement with those zones. And I'll give you an example. When we did the Rural Stroke Action Plan, we actually built a new model of early supported discharge and rehabilitation where the teams would go out to the patient's homes to give them their post-stroke rehab instead of patients waiting in hospital for long periods of time to get a rehab visit. And to do that, we added a bit of resource in rural Alberta. And so we built an accountability agreement with the administrators of those zones that they had to maintain the gains, uh, the improvements in morbidity and mortality for stroke in their zones. We give them a quarterly report 
and they're then held accountable to ensure those resources are spent on the stroke program in their areas. And we implemented that five years ago, and we're still holding the gains that we started five years ago. So we think that this periodic monitoring and and really clear accountability on what outcomes we're all hold for Albertans is a bit of the secret sauce for making that stick. You mentioned that women's poor experience with breast biopsies was one of the factors that led to focusing on that particular topic. How were women involved in the actual strategic clinical network? How do you involve patients? So uh, in the breast health, we actually had a group of very motivated, obviously, cancer survivors who wanted to help co-design that pathway. So we have them at the table. We obviously have patients and families at our core committees, but for every project, we we mobilize patients and families to be part of the co-design of the pathway development or the project itself. And so there's over 150 advisors connected to the networks. And where do we get our advisors from? There's lots of, there's lots of patient groups. Um, probably every province has lots of patient groups. And we draw upon those folks to get involved with us so that it's nothing about us without us. And where we've done that, we've had much greater success and uh, much better improvement. And you talk in in this uh, supplement that's coming out in the CMHA, you talk quite a bit about innovation. What do you mean by that? And how have strategic clinical networks fostered innovation in healthcare in Alberta? So for us in Alberta, we defined innovation as not just a a new, a fancy, shiny gadget, but we really thought it it really relies on on any kind of uh, innovation is trying out new and novel things. It could be a new model of care. It could be a new process. Uh, but again, it's really trying to respond to gaps and problems and try and solve those in an innovative way with things that matter to patients and families. And that's where our research arm has been really, really helpful to us, Andreas, because they've been able to help us uh, study uh, innovative ways build a robust you know, evaluation around that so that when we think about spreading and scaling it, we have the evidence to suggest that it's cost-effective, it improves quality, and it improves the experience. We're trying to inspire innovation both from the grassroots, because there's lots of good ideas out there, and we're also trying to work um, with other provinces around some of the innovation that they're doing that we can draw into our own province. Now, I'm sure that everything hasn't gone smoothly as you've rolled these out over the last few years. What are a few of the lessons learned from things that just haven't worked? No, everything's gone perfectly smoothly, Andreas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we intimated this and, and you sort of hit the nail on the head. The operational partners, they are swamped. These people are not working seven hours a day. They're busy. Uh, they're dealing with you know, patients waiting in the hallways in emergency rooms and on hospital wards, they're dealing with capacity issues. They're dealing with overtime and with, you know, sick calls. And so it doesn't leave a lot of room to be thinking about spreading and scaling things that are working really well at one unit. So what the networks have done is provided a bit of capacity to move those good ideas uh, forward. But where there's been challenges with the networks, I think would be when we reached out to stakeholders We had hundreds of pages of comments, things that were going well, things that weren't going well, and probably two-thirds of those pages were on communication, Andreas. 
and just the, the feeling that sometimes the networks didn't communicate early enough around their priorities. And then at the end of the day, where we ran into challenges, what were uh, priorities that came forward often from patients and on the ground clinicians, and they didn't feel like operations who controls the budget, they didn't feel like these were entirely aligned with their priorities. They didn't deal with most burning priorities for them. Um, so oftentimes operations is being asked to provide some resources uh, or you know, we're, we're asking them to change the way nurses or physicians in their programs work. And so when they don't feel like these priorities are the most important to them, uh, that, that can be alienating. And so one of the things you've really focused on over the past couple of years is aligning things together and because we're in a similar situation in some ways to what I understand is going on in Ontario with cutbacks in health. So these the, the operational teams don't have extra resources. Um, and if we go to them with 10 initiatives, their eyes can glaze over a bit, even though if they think these are important gaps and we agree this is important, they just don't have the resources. So we're really focusing on aligning uh, the work that we're doing with, uh, you know, what the Alberta Health Ministry is, is sending out to the province to asking them to do and bundling things together. So I, I would say that that's one area where we've learned the importance of really that clinical networks are in some ways are bottom up. It's the ideas on the ground that come from the clinicians and the patients, but it works best, you know, when we align that with the top down, with, you know, the people that hold the budgets, the people that make the decisions, uh, when we align those projects or those um, ideas together, those priorities together, that's when it works really well. Andreas, the other thing I think we've learned over these last few years is, you know, we talk about patient engagement, and it's kind of a buzzword in a lot of places, but how do you effectively engage patients in a way that is not tokenistic? And we we have learned the hard way where we've done it well and where we haven't done it well. And we have created a best practice guide on how do you actually effectively engage patients so that they are co-designing with you instead of we're just telling them that we're fixing the problem for them. And that that's tough to do because we actually have had to train our folks on what does co-design really mean and how do you effectively do it? And when we get these big projects and we've got clinicians in the room, not everyone feels comfortable having a patient sitting there when you're airing your dirty laundry about what's not working at a unit level. And so we spend a lot of time now training our clinicians on how to feel comfortable having a patient in the room uh, when you're starting to figure this out. And I'm assuming often there's more than one patient in the room, am I right? Yeah, we usually have groups of patients. One of the things we've learned is to, to actually, uh, you know, level out the power differentials that often occur. We have four or five patients in the room at any given time. Um, it That does two things. One, you get a breadth of of understanding from a, a lot of different people. And more importantly, if one advisor can't be there, uh, they, they know there's others there to hold, to carry on with the work. A lot of our advisors are actually patients who have the diseases and conditions that we're trying to work on. So for example, our dialysis group, we have a lot of dialysis patients that are working really hard on some of the work we're doing around living donor transplant. Well, they can be quite sick. So we have to also be really careful that we're respectful of their capacity. So I think I'm going to um, wrap it up here, but maybe just ask whether either of you have a burning brief thing to say at the end. Tracy? 
Well, I one of the points I just wanted to re-emphasize, Andreas, that the networks have done a really good job on is really look at where there's huge variation, even across hospitals, that people don't necessarily have the time or are not taking the attention to look at those things. And that's where we've been really successful in bringing operators to show the big variation that's occurring even in our own province. That in and of itself is a real mobilizer of, oh, we got to do something about this. Great. Braden? I guess the only thing I would say is we've really talked about and the examples we've used have really been very illness focused. And our networks initially started out really being very illness focused, but we've been asked to also think about prevention and maintaining health. And so a couple of the new networks that we brought on over the past couple of years, one is in primary care, and it's really building those bridges around access and transitions out into primary care. But Population Public and Indigenous Health is another network that focuses on Indigenous health. And they've been doing a lot of great work linking with Indigenous communities. And Population Public Health has been doing stuff around prevention, um, working across all of the networks. They're, they're trying to link patients. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of contacts that happen with the healthcare system every day. Can we link people, um, if they're smokers, to... Um, you know, effective smoking cessation programs. If people have risky drinking, uh, can we link them to brief intervention programs? So we're trying to embed prevention into network activities as well. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Andreas. Thanks, Andreas. So I'd like to thank Braden Manns and uh, Tracy Wasiluk, who uh, have uh, been talking to me from uh, Calgary. Braden is the Associate Chief Medical Officer for the Alberta Health Services Strategic Clinical Networks. And uh, Tracy is the uh, Chief Program Officer of the Strategic Clinical Networks with Alberta Health Services. To read the series of articles about Alberta's Strategic Clinical Networks, uh, please visit cmaj.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to uh, the CMAJ podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast app. And let us know how we're doing with our podcast by leaving a rating. I'm Andreas Lopakas, Editor-in-Chief for the CMAJ, and thanks very much for listening.